and welcome to another sparkling episode of Lost in Science. Uh, it is the science that you need on your listening device. Uh, my name is Chris and joining me is um, the ever-reliable Stu. How are you, Stu? I'm good. I'm very good. How are you? Yeah, good. I'm pretty good, I reckon. Um, I'm looking forward to talking about some science with you. Um, what have you got to infotain us with today? Well, I've, I've jumped off the AI bandwagon this week. I've been harping on about it, I suppose. Um, and I'm talking about, speaking of harps, I'm talking about the heavens. Um, I'm, oh. I'm, I'm going into space. Um, there's a lot of space stuff that's happened this year. And some of it, well, some of it didn't make it to space, but I'm not going to worry about that one so much. Um, there is there is a lot of space stuff happening, and I feel like we haven't really done a, a space story for a while. So I thought there's so much space to fill. Uh, I, I'd try and fill some of it with with science. Excellent. I mean, space is very big. There's probably a lot happening there that you're not going to be able to cover as well, or that you're not even aware of. Yeah, well, absolutely. But you know, the the research around space is is what I'm going to focus on mainly. Uh, excellent. Um, well, that sounds like it's really out there. Me, I have a story about, well, something with that I think we've talked about a fair bit on the program before. In fact, you, Stu, before you got, um, I suppose, so obsessed with AI, uh, you've done quite a few stories on Parkinson's disease. And I believe you did one just recently on Parkinson's disease. What was that about? Well, it, yeah, I did a story that was about AI and Parkinson's disease. Um, oh, there we go. Of course, yeah. of course, of um, course. Yeah. They were using AI to look for metabolites uh, which might be indicators of Parkinson's because there's no um, there's no definitive test for Parkinson's disease. You have to just sort of wait until people develop symptoms to diagnose it. So they're trying to use AI to give an early warning of the possible onset in people. Yeah. Excellent. Well, my story is, I guess, related to, I suppose, the fact that it does take so long to eventuate. Um, and and very a new study the, about looking at the cause of Parkinson's disease. And this study is showing a strong link between a toxic industrial chemical known as trichloroethylene or TCE, um, which for a long time has been suspected to be a cause of Parkinson's disease. And there is now, thanks to this latest study, there is some very strong evidence that that is the case. Um, like I said, it's long been suspected. I think pretty much everyone knew, but this is essentially confirming it, I believe, in many people's minds. So yeah, I'll be looking at that. So talking a bit about what we know about, yeah, how it works, uh, which will I will gather your expertise there for that as well, Stu. And yeah, what we know about this um, this particular chemical and what perhaps should be done about it. All right there. So we're going up there and down there in today's show. So let's get on with it. We have talked about the JW Space Telescope on the show before, and it continues to gather pretty spectacular data from the universe beyond our solar system. Apparently spends about a quarter of its time looking for exoplanets orbiting around distant stars uh, for around 75 different research programs from researchers around the world. Um, and because the JWST is more advanced than the Hubble telescope, it can look for details like the composition of the atmosphere of exoplanets, which 
which can potentially show how similar or different they are to Earth. And also potentially look for signs of life. If yeah. you can see chemicals that would only be produced by life or that are more likely to be used by life forms yeah the hubble could look for water that was that was what it was capable of no shade on the hubble um it was a very amazing project at the time but obviously the jwst is a bit of an improvement on that but nasa is already planning an even more specific telescope for the future which might take as long as 20 years to get into orbit and will be focused on specifically on planets that can support life so this okay This is called the Habitable Worlds Observatory, and it's part of NASA's GoMap, or Great Observatory Technology Maturation Program. And they're treating the Habitable Worlds Observatory the same as a planetary landing mission as far as planning and deployment, because they kind of want to keep the momentum going and, and get it the sort of hype behind it that they've had with sending people to the moon or landing things on Mars and all that sort of stuff. So it sounds like this one is going to be a bit more... Like- like you said, a bit more specific than the JWST, which was, like you said, a quarter of its time perhaps is spent doing this, but does a lot of other stuff as well. It's like really showing us new views of the cosmos. It's a very large instrument that also took a long time to build and cost a lot of money and nearly bankrupted NASA in the process. So I guess I'm a little worried that this one maybe will be a bit smaller in ambition, perhaps. Hopefully it will be a bit smaller in ambition, perhaps, or is it going to be as big a behemoth as the JWST? Well, it's it's hard to know, really, because the HWU is planned to launch launch in 2041 so they've already sort of got a launch date in mind but it's also going to be followed by a far infrared observatory in 2047 and an x-ray observatory in 2051 and there's a bit of tension between different teams of which one's more important to get up there and and looking at stuff first so the launch dates are sort of penciled in let's say at this point all of this as you say this is all based on budgets which are a long way off being approved at this point in time this is stuff you know you're talking billions of dollars in 15 20 years time it's it's hard to say what's going to actually win the prize i suppose but look all this focus on exoplanets and distant stars does take away from our nearest neighbors a little bit and there is still a lot left to explore and discover in our own solar system and some of it is to be found in missions that are already over long finished missions So, for example, NASA's Magellan spacecraft. Now, you'd be old enough to remember the Magellan, Chris. Uh, Not Ferdinand. I don't quite remember (laughs) Ferdinand, but yeah, I remember the um, the spacecraft. No, the, the, the spacecraft, not the explorer. The Magellan spacecraft took photos of the entire surface of Venus in the early 1990s, and it took pictures of some areas of the surface more than once because it was orbiting Venus and, and taking photos. So it got a complete picture. It took multiple shots of multiple things. Um, now, one of the areas that it took multiple shots of was a mountain called Mart Mons, which changed shape between the first photo and the second photo, which after more recent analysis shows that it's not just a mountain. It is in fact an active volcano. So, oh, wow. And, and, you know, they've, they've speculated for a long time that there's active volcanoes on Venus or Venus, you know, has active volcanoes because of its size and, and what it's made of. They kind of went, well, it's got to be, it's got to have geological activity. There's got to be heat inside it. The heat's got to escape somehow. Um, but this discovery was only published in March this year and it's been followed up by identification of at least 85,000 possible volcanoes on the surface of Venus, and that was published back in April. 
um, based on analysis of the photos. So they went back to the photos from the 90s and went, oh, hang on, we can see a whole lot of stuff in here that we missed the first time. And they've kind of pointed out all of these potential volcanoes. And there's probably a lot more than 85,000. This is just ones that they can definitely, um, or, or at least probably, uh, put their finger on and say they're, they're very likely to be volcanoes based on what they've seen. Now, new discoveries about planets in our solar system are still very frequent, though. So, for example, in February, astronomers confirmed, uh, astronomers confirmed another 12 moons orbiting Jupiter, which brought its total number of satellites to 92, which made it the mooniest planet in our solar system. Um, but only briefly. Only briefly, I understand, yeah. Only, <laughs> I've heard about this news, yeah. Yeah, only briefly because this month a new paper announced 62 new moons around Saturn, which doubles the number of known moons orbiting the ringed planet. So Saturn is, it was originally, you know, before, before these uh, 12 moons around Jupiter, it was, it was doing pretty well. Now it's king of the moons uh, with an extra 62. Now, I've got to point out at this point, these are not, you know, they're not the size of, of our moon, the, you know, of, of, of our Earth's moon. Uh, they're, they're quite small. They're irregular moons. What they think is that they're basically were larger objects that have been smashed into bits by some of the larger moons that are in orbit around these big planets. So, you know, they're not, they're not you know, probably, um, you know, some of you probably couldn't even land on them, but they are in stable orbits, which is, you know, part of the definition of the moon. But this is all from Earth-based observations. So some of it was they were actually looking for planets out near the orbit of Pluto or planetoids, um, and they were using, you know, old school telescopes, watching, taking notes, comparing orbits, you know, uh, very old school way of discovering things that they've figured out here. Now, also on Earth, uh, I don't know if you saw this news, but uh, analysis of samples from that asteroid Ryugu. Do you remember the mission, mm -hmm. Japanese mission to Ryugu? Collected samples from the asteroid in space, brought them back to Earth. They've shown the presence of uracil which is a molecule which is one of the four nucleotide bases that make up RNA. Um, oh, wow. Now, that doesn't mean that there is RNA on the asteroid, but it does lend credibility to the hypothesis that, uh, that these molecules could have arrived on Earth preformed and uh, started biological processes when they interacted. So they may have crashed into Earth on, on meteors and, uh, you know, th those chemicals then mixed and started kick-started life on Earth that way. Um, might not have happened here on its own. It might have already just been preformed chemicals from space, which is, you know, it's, it's, a, bit, uh, it's a bit more kind of believable, I think, than... than living things coming on meteorites, but but the, the building blocks of living things coming on meteorites, it's it's a pretty plausible hypothesis now that we've actually found some of these chemicals. Now, understanding the origin of life on Earth will also help figure out how to look for life in other places, especially, as we were saying before, on other planets, whether they are exoplanets or local solar bodies, but there's only so much you can do 
without leaving Earth. Now, the European Space Agency launched their JUICE mission to explore Jupiter's icy moons, which is where the name comes from. The J-U is from Jupiter and ice is makes it JUICE. Uh, and they're looking for signs of life on the moons of Jupiter. So the gas giant probably won't host life or not as we know it, Captain. Um, but the moons, uh, there may be liquid environments where life could possibly develop. So they're looking for life on, on those kind of places. Now, looking for life in places very unlike Earth will take some lateral thinking and a good understanding of how it came to be here. But looking for life on planets similar to Earth, you would think should be much easier. And uh, Venus is about the same mass as Earth, going back to Venus, and of a similar size. And research suggests it was once once very different to how it is now. It's got massive CO2 levels in the atmosphere, surface temperatures of close to 500 degrees Celsius. That's hot enough to melt lead and tin, which is you know a bit warm for any life that we know of. But it possibly once had an atmosphere similar to Earth, and it may have supported life in a similar way. And there may be detectable remnants of that life still there, potentially. And just to show that government agencies don't have all the space fun, a private company called Rocket Labs, which, you know, it's a pretty cool name for a company. Mm-hmm. Rocket Labs has launched a mission to Venus to look for life, which is the first private mission to Venus ever. And I tried to figure out if it's the first private space mission to another planet ever, and it was Pretty hard to figure out if it is. Certainly the first... It probably would be because Venus is the easiest planet to get to. There's just not a lot of reason to go there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, right. it, It'll melt your spaceship before you can, you know, land. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty amazing. And and obviously it's not a, it's not a, a what would you call it, a staffed mission, if you like. Uh, there's no people going. It's obviously just going to collect samples and, 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 and al- analyze them or whatever. But yeah, the first private mission to another planet uh pretty pretty amazing we live in interesting times speaking of you know i did mention before um there is private companies trying to get ships into space but some of them are not even leaving the atmosphere during tests and things but you know they're they're spectacular explosions that make the news these kind of private companies are just not doing it for the the flashy news coverage they're doing it to actually get some science out of it, I suppose. Now, I just wanted to sort of touch on this. This is a lot of stuff. This is all stuff that's happened in the last six months um, of this year that's new information about our very own solar system and all this activity in our spatial backyard shows that even though many eyes are pointing well beyond our solar system, there's still a lot to learn relatively close to home. Anything of interest to the scientific community? Together... You and I are going to make the greatest single contribution to science since the creation of fire. It's a big scientific experiment. What do I know? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. All right, yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. And, yeah, we're talking about Parkinson's disease yet again. Um, Parkinson's disease, which is, of course, a serious neurodegenerative disorder. It is to do with, um, yeah, it's often motor conditions is the the main um, 
the main guess, features of it, you know, muscle tremors and those sort of things. And it's related to the loss of neurons in in the part of the brain called substantia nigra. This is the part of the brain that's kind of deep in the, the midbrain, it's called, which is kind of at the bottom part near the brainstem. And these are specific, specific neurons that produce the neurotransmitter dopamine. Now, you would have heard of dopamine, of course. I have heard of dopamine. It's related to mood and things like that, isn't it? Well, it's it's often, yeah, people kind of think of it as like the pleasure chemical, but it's really... More recent research is showing that in that particular kind of use of it, it's more related to motivation, uh, sort of the motivation pathway and the, the kind of the reward and that sort of mechanism. It's it's related, to, yeah, it's related to motivation. It's the thing that makes you go towards a stimulus that is pleasurable, perhaps. So it's not actually generating the pleasure, but it's generating the, the response to the pleasure, I suppose. Okay. Um, but it does a bunch of other stuff as well. It's involved in many other pathways, including in muscle control, which is basically where you get the, the symptoms of Parkinson's disease from. Treatment for Parkinson's disease has mostly consisted of trying to increase the amount of dopamine to replace the dopamine that should have been created by these neurons. Now, you can't just inject this because it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. Instead, they use a precursor called L-DOPA, which then gets turned into dopamine. By doing that, really, all you're doing is treating the symptoms. You're not actually treating the cause. It's also this treatment, it kind of wears off after a while. It It ceases to be as effective, and it's got side effects, which aren't so good. It's not a permanent treatment. It's certainly not a cure. And there's a lot of work going on, a lot of research going on around the world to try and find a cure for Parkinson's disease. So I guess the other side that you could look at then is preventing the disease. This is, I guess, what we're talking about today. Now, there are some cases of Parkinson's disease do seem to be genetic. Only about 10% of them, though, which is a fairly small number, but it's a useful number because it was understanding the genes involved that helped to uncover some of the mechanisms of what's actually going on. Uh, with, uh, you know, in the background. But it does still leave 90% of cases that are caused by something else. And many people believe that toxic chemicals in the environment play a big role, especially since we've seen a more than doubling of cases of Parkinson's disease in the last 25 years. So it is becoming more and more prevalent. And so it's kind of a serious thing to get on top of what is actually causing it. That that sort of increase does tend to suggest that something in the environment has changed. Obviously, there's some underlying cause which has increased along with it. So you, I guess you could look for correlations of things that have also increased at the same rate. Well, what makes it difficult is because there is a long time for the disease to develop. And as you've discussed, it does basically generally waits until the symptoms occur, which often is past the age of 60. Mm. And so you kind of got a lifetime of accumulating whatever exposure is involved. So yeah, the search has been on for some of the culprits. And one that has been suspected really for about 50 years is this chemical I'll talk about today, which is trichloroethylene, abbreviated to TCE. Uh, now it has the chemical formula of C2HCl3. So it's actually two carbon atoms bonded together with three chloride atoms and a hydrogen attached to them. So it is a solvent. Um, during the 20th century, it was used for many purposes, including dry cleaning, um, decaffeinating coffee, um, and even it was used for a time as an inhaled anesthetic. In hindsight, not a great idea. Mm. Um Many of these uses were phased out years ago. A lot of them were phased out in the 1970s, but it is still in use today as an industrial degreaser, often in aerospace industries and in automotive industries um, and in making refrigerants. 
Now, for a long time, there have been uh, a series of number of case studies, really notable case studies, comp- um, that's kind of leading to this link between TCE and Parkinson's disease. Um, there's one in particular that was involving a professional basketball player, um, Brian Grant, who played in the NBA in the US, and he was diagnosed with Parkinson's at the age of 36. And it is believed that he was exposed to this chemical TCE when he was about three years old. And his father, who was a Marine, was stationed at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina in the US. So you had these kind of case studies which tracked people's exposure and look at that. Now, 36 is quite young to be developing mm. Parkinson's disease. Let's, let's just say that. Um, there have been some larger studies. There was a twin study that was published in 2011 that looked at 99 pairs of twins where only one of them had Parkinson's and basically did did questionnaires to find out if they could have been exposed to TCE in the course of their occupation or hobbies. Um, and they found roughly six times the rate of Parkinson's disease if there was an exposure to TCE. It was fairly... Um, uh, there was a lot of uncertainty in that result, though, but that was quite a kind of showed there was um, a fairly strong correlation. Mm. Um, apart from these kind of epidemiological studies, there have also been, I suppose, biological studies on rats, which found, trying to find the mechanism that might be involved, and they found that it does affect mitochondria, in particular, basically affects the mitochondria in the neurons in this part of the brain, the substantia nigra, and they basically kills those neurons by attacking their mitochondria. So a lot of evidence has gathered, and it's pretty. Most people were pretty convinced that this chemical is is um, yeah is to blame. Although there hasn't been the really confirming evidence until this latest study, which is quite a large study that was just published recently in the journal um, Journal of American Medical Association Neurology. Now, the lead author is from the University of California in San Francisco. It's Samuel Goldman, who also did the the twin study that I mentioned before. Uh, And they looked also at something we mentioned, which was that Marine Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. So what they did is they looked at some veterans who had been stationed at this Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, and they compared it to a different Marine Camp, Camp Pendleton in California, now, in Camp Lejeune, there was use of TCE to decrease the military equipment and um, they knew it was known it got into the water supply, whereas there was not contamination at the other camp in California. And so they had health data for 158,000 veterans um, and they had fairly similar demographic characteristics between the two camps, and they basically compared the rate of Parkinson's disease from these two locations. And they found that um, 279 people from Camp Lejeune um, uh, had Parkinson's and 151 from Camp Pendleton. And basically when they kind of accounted for basically matched all the demographics and all those statistics, they found that there was a 70% increased risk of Parkinson's with the exposure from Camp Lejeune. Wow. Um, And that was a fairly, the statistics on that were a lot better. It was pretty solid statistics. Um, And yeah, so that was a quite a, um, yeah, quite a strong connection. Also found um, an increased risk of some of the precursors to Parkinson's, which are things like um, some tremors, anxiety, and erectile dysfunction. They found that was more prevalent among the veterans from um, Camp Lejeune. Um, so yeah, it does seem to be pretty strong evidence. But the issue here is that 
the exposures they were looking at were from a long time ago. This was from 1975 to 1985 was the time period that they were looking at. And these are people who might have been stationed there for about two years in that time period. Um, so they would have been there around when they were about, say, 20 years old. Um, and the average age that they got Parkinson's was about 54 years old. So it took nearly 30 years, so over 30 years, for the... Um, for the disease to manifest after being exposed to the chemical. Um, which I guess matches up to the basketball player we talked about before, who was um, had been there when he was three years old, mm. and he got it at 36. So, but it is, yeah, it does seem to be fairly um, kind of repeatable statistics, but it is still many decades we're looking at. Um, and this is perhaps why we're seeing rises now. And... Even if we ban it now, which there are, of course, calls to ban this carcinogen complete, this, um, this chemical completely, and it is a carcinogen as well, so I slip of the tongue there, but it is known to be a carcinogen too. There are calls to ban it completely, but the fact that it has been in use for so long and it does spread widely, um, it gets into groundwater, it can basically contaminate a large area um, and potentially um, many thousands of people that we're going to continue to see increasing cases from it over the, the coming years, most likely. Um, now, like I said, it is still being used, hasn't been banned yet. Um, there is increasing use in some parts of the world because of its role in industry. Um, it does seem to be still used in Australia as well. Um, and there, of course, been concerns here about contamination for a while because, again, the fingers have been pointed to a particular chemical for quite a while. Uh, I found a report from about five years ago that talking about some sites that were being monitored for contamination in New South Wales and South Australia by the, the EPAs in those respective states. Um, it sounds like the other states are aware of, of it as well. Victoria said that it had some sites that it was monitoring, but they wouldn't reveal what those sites were. Um, like I guess the hope now is that if there is strong evidence that it will be taken a bit more seriously and people can be basically made aware of their exposure, uh, if it is going to be contaminating over such wide areas and there is this strong link, then I think it would be useful for people to know if they are likely to have an increased risk of Parkinson's from such exposure. Um, yeah, so that is a bit of a concern. Also, I suppose the worry is that this is, I suppose, a chemical that has a very strong link. We don't know perhaps what other chemicals might be out there that may also be causing this condition. Um, I guess one of the one of the things that that it could help with is if they can figure out the you know the mode of action and the actual uh, the the actual me metabolic pathways that it causes the disease. They may be able to use that information to identify other chemicals that may have the same mode of action and, and sort of you know pinpoint which other chemicals may be causes but also may be able to use that information to figure out how to possibly reverse the damage that it's causing as well like it's not a um you know it's, it's a good thing to know yes we should ban these chemicals but if we can figure out why it does what it does it might might lead to better treatments as well yeah, absolutely. Um, that's that's the thing. Now, I guess there is a concern with a disease like this. It's attacking neurons, and uh, as you've discussed, you know you can't diagnose it very early. 
perhaps by the time you diagnose it, it's too late to reverse some of that damage mm. without replacing the neurons involved. And um, But if we can pick it up early, perhaps there's a way to stop some of that damage being done if, as you say, we know how it's being caused. And we, yeah, perhaps pick it up in the early stages and might be able to nip it in the bud before it goes too far. And that is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can send cheap tweets to us at lostinscience1 on Twitter, or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.